Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, happy to be here. I'm excited about it. We are launching into a, a new sermon series called Reconciled, talking about how do we reconcile our finances, but really our whole selves to Jesus? How do we connect all of who we are to the person of Jesus, including our money, right? And so in order to kind of start this new series, this new sermon off, I want to tell a story about myself. I like talking to people knowing that they know a little bit about me. It just makes me feel more comfortable. So here's a story. Um, it's actually a recent story about how I recently came into contact with how much I actually trust God with my personal finances. And um, a, few months ago, a few months ago in December, my wife and I moved from Ohio to uh, Minneapolis. And during that time, we... As anyone probably knows, if you're moving, you're spending money that you don't plan for. Like, oh, we're moving. We need to buy toilet paper and food. We need food and candles because the house is smelly and just like random stuff that you don't think or plan for, but you get there and you're like, oh yeah, we got to do this. And so we had enough in savings to kind of cushion us for this move. And we get there and it's all good with generosity for a, bu a bunch of different people in our families. We're awesome and super helpful too. And so we get there, we, we put down um, uh, our security deposit and we pay rent on the place and December is good. We make it. And then January comes and the first of the month comes and that's when rent is due. And so we pay rent, feeling really good about that. And then our car payment is due too. And it just kind of automatically takes money out of our checking account. And I was at work, it was my lunch break, and I was just thinking kind of randomly, like, oh, I should just kind of look at our checking account, see where we're at. So I open it, and what I saw terrified me, because I saw one dollar <laughs> in my checking account. The first service laughed too. <laughs> there was laughing. I saw one dollar in my checking account, and I could not believe it. I couldn't handle it. I, I felt a range of emotions I had never experienced in my life. I felt ashamed and afraid. I, I, like, I didn't want to go to my wife and tell her, hey, just so you know, we got one dollar. Don't buy anything. <laughs> like, that's not a good feeling. I, I mean, I'm sure the husbands in, in this room can connect with that. that. That's a terrible feeling to have, to go to your wife and say, hey, we have one dollar in our checking account. Also, at that moment in time, that was like the only thing that distinctified me to the whole world. It was like I was wearing a t-shirt that said, I'm worth one dollar. <laughs> it's like tattooed on my forehead. Everywhere I went, I just saw one dollar. I'm looking at everybody. It's how I felt, you know? That's, that was my worth. And what I didn't feel in this moment was any sense of freedom. I felt enslaved to my checking account. I felt enslaved to what my checking account was saying about me and who I am and who you know, who I am. And what didn't happen was my soul didn't cling to God. My, my soul did not go up to Jesus and say, yeah, this is scary and, and I'm ashamed of it and, and I wish it was better, but I'm gonna work towards it and I'm gonna trust you in the process. It was just, I'm worth one dollar. One lousy dollar. And today, as we kind of launch into this new sermon series, what we really want to talk about is how do we connect ourselves holistically to God from our hearts to the money in our bank account. Um, if you have your notes page, this is a green little insert, on the back of it, Pastor Chris wrote a short summary of, of this uh, series. 
And I, wanna, I just want to read it, uh, the second sentence particularly, and just ponder it for a moment. It says this, imagine what it would be like to experience freedom from greed, freedom from debt, freedom from guilt, and freedom from the myth of financial security. And when I read that, my soul like took a deep breath. And kind of what I mean by that is as I was thinking about that and praying over it and praying over this sermon, I kept thinking, man, that is what I want to know. I want to know that freedom. I want to be that secure in who God is and who God says that I am, that even when my checking account says $1, I'm, I'm not connecting my worth to that or my joy to that or my happiness to that. It's founded in something a lot more secure. And, you know, even just like thinking about the idea that financial security is indeed a myth creates in me this desire to want to know something secure, want to know something that if I put my faith in or my hope in, that it's not going to return on me void, right? That it's not going to push me into the dirt. It's going to maintain, it's going to sustain me for a long time. And in the next few weeks, our purpose is to uncover and expose that myth and its empty promises while at the same time exploring the riches that are possible and to be known in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's where we're headed in the next few weeks. Today, we're going to begin by looking at one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the sower, and asking its relevance for our lives today. And the title of today's sermon is Among Thorns. And the reason it's Among Thorns is because it's kind of, it has a dual meaning to it. The first meaning is it's a, it's a storytelling device that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses to explain the deceitfulness of riches clouding and muffling the message of the kingdom of God. But also, so that's what we'll get into that, but also this is a definition of where we are in our culture. We are a people among the thorns, specifically of finances. And constantly, constantly, these thorns are rising up and choking us of joy, choking us of happiness. Daily, our attentions are hijacked and glued to worry, anxiety, and meaningless time wasters, all of which can be used to subtly supplant the king of glory from, our own, from the throne of our hearts. Jesus' allusion to a plant being choked and withered by thorns has the same jarring effect today as it did in the first century. And so with all of that in mind, I'd love to just begin with prayer, to ask God's help to open our hearts, to unblock our ears, and to hear a word from him today. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we come to you now in this moment, and we submit ourselves to you. And we ask, I ask God that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would purify me so that I might speak a true and honest word that is faithful to your word, God, and that you would do something in our hearts and lives, that you would transform us from the inside out, and that we would know just a little bit more how to honor you with our finances. So God, we trust you, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. So our text today is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, these are what are known as the synoptic gospels. They're called the synoptic gospels because in many places they have the same stories and a similar wording and a similar order as well. John is also a story of Jesus. It's also a gospel, but it has unique wording and unique order to it. So the synoptic kind of like center around the same sort of order where John is a little bit distinct. All of them are telling the story of Jesus, and that's super important to remember. 
All of them are telling the story of Jesus, but each of them have unique characteristics of who Jesus is and how Jesus interacts with people and how Jesus' sacrifice is relevant for all, all disciples, all people who are following, trying to follow Jesus today. So I would encourage you, if you have time, look up Matthew and Luke's account of this same parable because it's really interesting to see the nuances in Jesus' character. But today, we're in Mark, Mark chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, please open them or unlock them or open the app or whatever. Um, if you don't have a Bible at all, we have Bibles here for you to, to take home and enjoy. They're yours free of charge. So please do so. So we're in Mark chapter four. We'll start in verse one and read through verse nine to kind of read through Jesus' parable as a whole. Again, he, being Jesus, began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it immediately sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is making some really profound statements here. And, and let's begin by just saying that he's not just talking about plants and their growth patterns. He's digging a little deeper. Garden pun for <laughs> anyone listening. He's digging a little deeper, right? There, there's more to what he's saying here. And, and Jesus, this form of teaching is, is called parables. Like he said, he's teaching them in parables. And this is one of Jesus' most common teaching methods. And, and they're really good and they're, and they're really interesting. They're still being mined for meaning 2,000 years later. If my teachings are still around after 2,000 years, they won't be. But if they were, that'd be pretty impressive. Jesus is, Right? So I think it's important for us as we look at this text to dignify it for what it is. It is a parable. And it's important for us to do that so that we can understand what Jesus is trying to do and trying to teach us. And in fact, we do this with all literature, probably without even thinking about it. We don't read a poem the same way we read a science fiction novel, right? Because we have created categories in our brain that help us understand and put it into a contextualized format for us to get meaning out of it. And that's actually really helpful. It's a helpful thing to do. So we should definitely do it in scripture as well. So in verse 10, we see the disciples wanting to know more about Jesus' parable. And this is the only time in all the gospels where the disciples come to Jesus and ask him about their parable. It's kind of like, Jesus, why are you doing this? And this is really helpful for us because it gives us an insider look into the mind of Jesus, in, in the insider look into this master teacher and his methods. And as a kind of a side note too, I'm so glad that the disciples felt comfortable enough to ask Jesus this question and other questions like it. Because if you think about it, if you're an ordinary guy, got an ordinary job, feeling good about it, but then the Messiah comes into your life. And in your mind, this is literally the savior of the whole world. And he comes to you and he's like, hey, come and hang out with me and I'll teach you everything I know. 
I can imagine, at least for me, it would be very easy for me to think like, I've got it figured out. Like I got the dude, he's gonna save the world, I'm in his company, I'm in his crew, and I don't have to ask any questions because I know what's going on. But the disciples repeatedly don't do that. They're constantly asking questions. And I think the reason Jesus chose those kind of disciples is because he knew that when he answered those questions, he wasn't just talking to 12 people. He was talking to generations of generations of followers that would need that explanation later on. And so what I'm saying here is like, it's good to ask questions of the Bible. The disciples did it and they were with Jesus. Anyways, that's a thing over here. Come back over here now, okay? So I'm really glad that they asked that question. So let's take a moment and read Jesus' response to them, starting in verse 10. And when Jesus, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So let me begin here by saying that there's a lot going on theologically in this passage, a lot. But in this particular circumstance, what Jesus is not doing is he is not creating an us versus them scenario. He's not saying, I'm giving you secret knowledge and it's only for you and for no one else. It's privileged knowledge in in other words. That's not what he's doing. He's not distinctifying the knowledge that he's giving to the disciples that make them better or make them more well off than anybody else. And the reason I can say all of that is because of the word that we translate as secret. In Greek, it's mysterion. And you can hear the word mystery in there, right? This word is only ever used once in all of the gospels. And it's right here in this parable, only once. And that's really helpful for us because that means it's unique. And that can help us understand more clearly what, God, what Jesus is saying here by using this word. So while it's unique to the Gospels, it's not unique to Paul. He uses it 21 times. And John uses it four times in his revelation. All of them having a very similar meaning, which helps us really understand what Jesus is trying to say by using this word. And so to help, I chose a guy who's a lot smarter than I am to help explain this, right? So... James A. Brooks is the uh, author of a New American Commentary on Mark, and he says this, each time it is used by Paul, this word mysterion or secret, it connotes to mean a truth that was not known in the past that cannot be known apart from divine revelation and and that has recently been revealed by God. This meaning best explains the present passage. The secret or better revealed truth is the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus Christ. So this would suggest that Jesus is saying that something new has come into the world, his kingdom has come into the world, and his disciples have a front row seat to it. New knowledge is springing forth because of Jesus in the world. And his disciples are first. They get to hear it first. But it's not just for them. This is a revealed truth that Jesus is imparting to them. Once again, he's not just talking to 12 people here. He knows that this message has to multiply. So in other words, he's not saying, okay, I'm going to give this to you, but you only you get it, and then you're going to guard it and hold it and not tell anyone else about it. No, it's like, it's here now. Here it is. Get ready. 
Go tell a lot of other people about it. Do the same thing that I'm doing to you, for you. This also means that the, that the secret knowledge of Jesus is, talking, is not talking about privileged knowledge. In other words, and I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes. Now that the kingdom of God has come to reality, the knowledge of Jesus and his kingdom has been made available, and this part is key, to all who want it. And this is kind of the hard teaching of Jesus teaching through parables. This is why he teaches in parables. It's because Jesus is not a show-off. Jesus knows the value of the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And instead of like creating a fireworks show around it with lasers and smoke and mirrors, he knows it's so precious and that it's so life-changing that he presents it in such a way that says, if you want to know more, dig a little deeper. He's, he's presenting truth but he's inviting you into an experience with him or a relationship with him. It's more dynamic and more complex than black and white. And that's what he's doing here in this, in this moment. So he teaches the people who are, act, who, he teaches people who are actively listening, but this means that those who are apathetic to Jesus' message will likely miss what he's trying to say. Therefore, Jesus is giving them a way out if they want it. In this way, Jesus is a gentleman. He never forces himself or his kingdom on anybody. He invites them into a relationship, and that invitation can be rejected, and many times is rejected. But doesn't it say something about the character and nature of Jesus, that he has this wonderful, powerful message that saves and brings joy and life and he doesn't force it down anyone's throat. He brings them into a relationship. He is not forcing obedience. He's offering an embrace. And this is why at the end of Jesus' parable, he calls out to the crowd, anyone who has ears to hear, let them. Anybody. Anybody's welcome into this knowledge. But you've got to search for it. You've got to listen for it. You've got to seek it out a little bit. I would encourage you to write this down. It's an encouragement, not a command. Jesus has plenty of commands for his disciples later on. But here, he's inviting anybody. It's for anybody. But what does any of this have to do with our finances, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. Let's get back on focus, Brandon. Okay. Talking about finances. Everything that I've just said sets up the context for what Jesus does right after this in verse uh, 14. In verse 14, he goes on to an explanation of the parable that we've previously read. And so for today, we're gonna focus our attention on verses 18 and 19, the among the thorns portion. So let's go there. In verse 18, this is what Jesus says. And others are sown, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is us. Now, perhaps you don't struggle with trusting God with your finances. And if that's true, awesome. Like, let's hang out. Maybe you could teach me. Because that's great. And praise God for it. But, however, this is our culture, right? This is the world that we kind of live in on a regular day-to-day -day basis. How, 
How often does the beauty and the power of the gospel get shut out of our attention because we are worried about how much or how little money we make and obsessing over how life would be just a little bit better if we had a little bit more? Jesus is laying out a warning for all those who are following in his ways. He's saying that the tremendous awesomeness, yes, I said awesomeness in a sermon, He is saying that the tremendous awesomeness of the gospel can be and will be overshadowed by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. If the soil of our heart is not set on the message of Jesus. Jesus is actually saying the good news of the gospel will be thrown out if we don't pay attention to it. And rather we pay attention to other things. And this is the thing, I I was thinking about this and praying over this this morning, and the a quote came to mind uh, by C.S. Lewis where he says uh, in, in his lecture he has called The Weight of Glory. He says, God does not find our desires too big. They don't, he doesn't find our desires too great for himself. He finds them too small. For while we are piddling away with the cares of this world, he is offering us infinite joy. He compares it to a kid being content with making mud pies on a rainy day when he's being offered the joy of a beach vacation. He finds, God finds our desires too small. When we allow the cares and deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world to cloud our understanding of the gospel, our desires are too small, friends. Too small. But also notice this, or or notice this, Jesus does not condemn riches in themselves. And that's a, crucial point to make. He does not suggest that anyone who is wealthy is a big meanie or, you know, a bad guy, right? Jesus condemns the deceitfulness of riches. And this is kind of a unique turn of phrase because money doesn't talk to us. I know there's the phrase money talks, but like money literally doesn't tell us something. We create a culture around money. I was talking to someone after the first service and they were saying that like the whole idea of economics is that we um, we create whatever it is. P- little pieces of paper don't tell us anything. We tell that piece of paper what it's worth. And so, because of that, we create a lie for ourselves. That life is better if we have more money, or it's easier if we have more money, or whatever, if we have a nicer car, whatever. And Jesus is warning against that. He's not warning against making money or having money. He's warning against the lies that we believe money can offer us. And I would encourage you to write this down. If we are setting up our lives to readily believe the words of riches, then the message of the gospel will prove unfruitful for us. If that's our, if, if that's our instinct, if we are constantly going back to that, prioritizing finances over the kingdom of God, then I promise you our priority on finances will continue to grow and the priority of the kingdom in our lives will continue to decrease. But also notice what Jesus has to say of the ones who prepare their heart and reorient their lives to accept and live out the gospel of the kingdom. In verse 20, Jesus explains that the seeds which are sown in good, on good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. I read one commentary that said, 
if farmers in the first century planted their seeds and they got a crop that was 15-fold of what they were planning on, that was like a huge success. Like the whole village would celebrate that. So when Jesus suggests that what he's offering, what's being sown into them, it can produce 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold, it's unsurmountable. It's absolutely ludicrous that he would suggest that because it's so much. Jesus says that those who hear the gospel of the kingdom and accept it are those who in the end receive massive amounts of increase on what has been sown in them. And watch too that what is multiplied in these people is not of monetary value, but of kingdom value, of eternal value. In other words, these people are not bogged down by the worries of the world or distracted by the deceitfulness that riches provide because they are too busy enjoying the fruit of the good seed that was given to them. They are caught up in the promises of freedom that Jesus offers all those who would choose him over the security of finances. Therefore, those who have ears to hear, Jesus is saying, listen up and make your heart ready to receive and live out the gospel of the kingdom and prepare yourselves for a return that is far greater than you could have ever previously imagined. That is solid. That lasts forever. So you might be asking yourself, cool, but like how do I do that? And the truth is the answer to that question is really is difficult because we're all living unique stories, right? Even if every single person in this room was struggling with trusting God with their finances, you would struggle in a very unique way because you're a unique person, you're a unique family. But what I can say with a certain degree of certainty and encourage you to do is that a great place to start would be to begin actively and intentionally inviting God into the financial decisions of your life. Inviting his his say into financial decisions. What if when we had a financial decision, big or small, our first instinct was not to go to our budget, not to go to our checking account, not to go to our income, but to hit our knees and ask God's wisdom. And this came to light one afternoon with my wife and I, because for me, it was, we ha- we're a one-car family. Last service said one-family car. I don't know. One-car family. That's it. And, and, I, and we make it work, you know? Uh, but I was like, I kind of want another car, make things a little bit easier. So we were just kind of having this casual husband-wife conversation. And in the middle of it, she stops and she's like, why don't we pray for that? And I was like, that is a really good idea. I'm so glad I married you. That is, wow, a great idea. And so we stopped. We literally we stopped our conversation and we bowed our hearts and bowed our heads and we prayed. Kelsey prayed for us. And, and she just began by saying, like, God, you're in charge. You're in control and we trust you. And if you want us to have a car, then show us the way. Show us how we can make it work. And if not, then stop us. And again, I'm thinking like, man, I'm glad I married this girl. Like, good job, Brandon. (laughs) That's a really good thing. (laughs) While also agreeing with her prayer, right? (laughs) But it, it struck me like, why don't we do this more often? Why don't we do this a lot more often, whenever we have a financial decision to make, why don't we pause our hearts and say, God, 
we trust you with our whole lives, therefore we trust you with our finances. And we, we will go where you tell us to go, and we won't go where you tell us not to go. What if that was our response? And I can't imagine, if you're a family, if you have kids and you're a parent, I can't imagine a more, like, a, a better, like, discipleship moment where you know you have a financial decision to make and you bring your kids into, into that family room with you and you're like, hey, we have, we've got to make this decision about a new car or whatever, so we're gonna pray together. We're gonna all bend our knees and we're all going to say, God, you're in charge and we trust you with our finances. Thus modeling to kids, like, it is not the amount of money that you make that defines who you are. It is who God is. Imagine that. Imagine if we had that response. That is soil that will yield some awesome fruit. So what do we do with this? Well, I have a couple questions that I, I hope can help us reorient our lives to the building of the kingdom with our finances. And the first, is, um, the first question is, where am I telling my money to go? Uh, I learned this from Dave Ramsey. Uh, I know that we have a small group that's starting up soon, or it already is started, I'm not sure, um, that goes through his teachings on financial peace, and, and they're great. They're really, they're really useful. But I found this question particularly useful because the truth of the matter is, however much money you make, whether it's large or small, you're in charge of it. You actually ter- tell it where's, where to go from choosing to go out to eat or not go out to eat or buy a car or not buy a car. Like You tell your money where to go. And therefore, because of that, wherever your money is going is a reflection of your desires, whether we actually like that or not. And what if we were able to get in front of our money and start telling it to go towards the kingdom of God on a more regular basis? What if when we looked at our checking account as like a monthly, you know, litmus test of how much am I building the kingdom with what God has given me, however big or small? What if, what if we did more of that or asked those kinds of questions of our money on a regular basis? And if asking yourself that question yields the response of buying into the myth of financial security or worse, the greed of your own heart, then may I present to you a different way, a new way, a way that does not tie you to financial security but ties you to the security that is only found in Jesus. The counterintuitiveness of the kingdom of God is that the more we give, the more we receive. The more we give of ourselves to Jesus, the more we receive of who he is. The more we give of our money to the building of the kingdom of God, the more we receive. Once again, it might not always be monetary, but it will be eternal. And that, my friends, is way better. Way better. So after asking yourself, where am I telling my money to go? Then I would encourage you to ask this question. In my financial life, how am I prioritizing the kingdom of God? Make it personal. When, it, when questions are general and they mean nothing to you, the answers mean nothing to you. But when they matter to you, they matter to you. And the actions follow that. Once you know where your money is going, it's easier to guide it toward the priorities of the kingdom of God. And this is an area that I would encourage you to get really creative with. It doesn't matter how much or how little money you make. God has given us resources that we are to steward and give towards him. And that, might look di- that, will, that will look different for every person in this room. 
and what that means, what God is calling us to do. But get creative. Figure out new ways to serve God. I mean, I love doing that. And you're probably thinking, yeah, yeah but you're a pastor and you're, you're geeky like that and you have to do that. But yeah, that's true. But it's also so life-giving. It's also so, so life-giving. No matter how you answer this question, and please hear me on this, no matter how you answer these questions, please do so with grace. This sermon series and this church is not about keeping judgment or guilt on anybody. I think every person on staff would be the first to say, we are sinners first. We mess up first, right? The purpose is to point towards freedom. The purpose is to point towards Jesus and to say that if you focus your financial lives on the person of Jesus, you will encounter freedom upon freedom upon freedom. And we actually believe that a life centered towards Jesus brings about that kind of purpose and that kind of life. So please answer these questions for yourself with grace. This whole series is set up to combat the deceitfulness of riches in our lives and in our culture. But for that to take root, it will take each of us honestly approaching what we are doing with our money and inviting the Holy Spirit into our financial lives and being willing, and this part was hard for me to write down, to let him set our precedence and meaning it. It means that we say, yes, we trust you, God, more than ever with our finances. And that means if you say no to this thing that we want, like a new car, we won't do it. We'll trust you in that. And that small discipline produces a life that when things are shaky and you have $1 in your account or something like that, your trust in God stands firm. And it comes alive in those moments. But it, it's the hard, small decisions of saying, God, we trust you. If you speak to us, we'll follow you no matter what. No one will say that, that is easy, but we will say that it's worth it. And this should never, ever be done alone, especially in this culture. Never alone. We all need help, accountability, encouragement, especially in this area of our lives. Whether it's finding a Christ-centered financial advisor who can guide your finances toward more building of the kingdom of God or taking the financial peace small group and taking it seriously and prayerfully. Or maybe what if then we had a financial decision to make and our first response was to hit our knees and our second response was to call someone in this church and say, hey, I need wisdom and I know that you love God. Will you pray for me? Will you pray for our family in this? Will you walk alongside us to help us make a good decision that would honor God and, and make sense? What if we relied on each other? That's what the church is for. That's why Christ built the church in the way that he did, so that we would rely on each other. And that's hard to do, but it's worth it. So therefore, in Jesus' parable of the sower, we see that because of Christ. In the coming of his kingdom, we have been given access to the knowledge of the secret things of God that were once hidden but are now made evident through Christ Jesus. But along with this comes the responsibility and opportunity to come to Jesus and allow him to unblock our ears and to open our eyes to the freedom his teachings and saving work provide. 
And we have seen that we live in a culture among thorns, which is the deceitfulness of riches. And we have seen that this deceitfulness is not combated, if it is not combated with the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God, our lives will produce no lasting fruit. Now, in light of all this, may we learn to prefer the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. May we reject the deceitfulness of riches and step in front of our money and start telling it where to go. And may God come alongside us and grant us wisdom on how we can use the resources he has given us for his purposes in the world. And may we give of what we have, however large, however small, and receive in turn eternal freedom. Today, there will be people in the back who would love to pray with you. If you're saying, I kind of want to get this started, I maybe need some encouragement, or I have a financial decision, and I need the church to, to give me wisdom and to pray with me, there will be people back there to pray with you and carry your burdens with you. But now I'd just, I'd like to stop and pray for you. Pray that God would solidify his word among us. So please, let's pray. Father, I pray more than anything that your word would endure that my words would, would burn away, but that the gold that would last and remain would be the truth of the gospel. And God, I pray that our hearts would begin to prefer it over anything, over riches, over lust, over greed, over anything, God, in our hearts and lives, that we would prefer the furtherment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, God, would you infuse into our hearts purpose in life like we've never known, a freedom that lasts and lasts. God, would you wake us up to the truth of your gospel and may we become dissatisfied with our small pleasures and honestly, openly welcome the infinite joy that you offer us on a regular basis. God, you are king. We want to trust you more. And Lord, we love you and we want to love you more. So God, move in our hearts and transform us from the inside out. We trust you and we love you. In Christ's holy name, amen. Thank you so much. Have an awesome week.